Welcome to this week's episode, Play On Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Frank Hans. Today we are privileged to be speaking with David Ivers, an actor in this season's production of Amadeus. David is festival co-artistic director and this season's director for Charlie's Aunt. David has been with the Utah Shakespeare Festival for 18 seasons and has acted in over 40 productions, including as Tony in Dial M for Murder, Autolycus in The Winter's Tale, Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing, Clown Number 1 in The 39 Steps, Jaques in As You Like It, Jake in Stones in His Pockets, and the title roles in Scapin and Richard II. As a director for the festival, David has worked on Cyrano de Bergerac in 2008, The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Abridged in 2009, Romeo and Juliet in 2011, Twelve Angry Men in 2013, and last season's production of Twelfth Night. He's also directed at Berkeley Rep, Alabama Shakespeare Festival, Idaho Shakespeare Festival, Portland Center Stage, Portland Repertory Theater, A Contemporary Theater, Seattle Repertory Theater, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, where he was also a member of the acting company, and Denver Center Theater, where he worked as both an actor and director for 10 seasons. Today we interview David about his role in this season's production of Amadeus. David plays Antonio Salieri, the court composer who is overshadowed by the young Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Well, it's great to have you in here today, David. Thanks for coming by to talk with us. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. So we'll jump right in and talk about this little role you're playing this season in Amadeus. Who, in, who, in your opinion, is uh, is Salieri? He's kind of all of us. I mean, I hope. I mean, I hope he's the present us and the past us, and you know, he's kind of the great contradiction that is the human being in so in so many ways. And uh, he's he's a guy that, unfortunately, I think was just born at the wrong time, <laughs> you know? Yeah, how do you say more about that? Well, I think, you know, he says in the play, which I, I, I love, um, you know, he says, I was born a pair of ears at the end of the play. And I think, to extend that further, it means clearly in the play that, that he had his gift his genius, like Mozart, like any other genius, I think Salieri does have a genius. And his genius is, is that he has the ability clearly to recognize composition well before its time, way before anyone knew that Mozart was going to become what he was. And so when he says, I was born a pair of ears and nothing more, is that he, he, it is both a blessing and a curse, but that's what, that's what giftedness brings to the world. It does. Um, it simultaneously exalts someone while it simultaneously challenges them. And it does the same for other people. And if you have just a spool of thread in your DNA, like Salieri does, that's untethered, it can become an obsession. And, uh, and I think uh, we all can relate to maybe wishing we were born in another time where our context would have exalted us. We can all relate to ourselves or other people having gifts, you know, and them not, quote, being good enough, you know, but the, they're only not good enough in relationship to the context of somebody else's. And that's, that's, so it's hard. And I, and I think, um, sort of talking around in a circle here, but I think he, I think Salieri is so ultimately human. Uh, and sometimes I think that's what people might have a hard time digesting about the play. <laughs> 
he's a little too much like us sometimes. I think so. I mean, I think, <laughs> look, Schaffer, that is not an unknown form to him in his writing by any means, nor is his exploration of man's relationship to God, you know, and to genius. And um, he's wrestling with big issues, but he wrestles them. He wrestles with them as if he's a, an archaeologist, an anthropologist, a sociologist, a psychologist, you know, a theologist, you know what I mean, theologian. And, he, and so it's a pretty astonishing piece of penmanship, I think. Absolutely, it's it's a it's a massive role. I mean, what he seems to take on in this play is so complex and intricate, and and sort of weaves through all of these different places. and And the Amadeus story is is used in so many interesting ways, so that it is not only about that; it's about so many other things as well. Um, you were talking a second ago about sort of the relationship between man and genius and God. And that seems to be a really um, prevalent theme in this play and and highlighted in this production, I think, too. Um, talk a little more about that. Well, I think some of it's lifted right off the page. He's pretty, he's pretty clear about it that, you know, I mean, C.S. Salieri says numerous times that that God's preferred creature in this scenario is Mozart, that the mouth of God is speaking through the compositions of Mozart, that his genius is a gift, his name indeed, Amadeus, you know, beloved of God is the translation, you know. Um, it's also a good title of, for the play because <laughs> Salieri is not going to sell tickets. Right. You know? um, but, uh, but it sort of hangs over Salieri then even more. Yeah, because, because of that. Yeah, and also Salieri says very early on, and 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 particularly in the period, in you know, in the 18th century, even in the 19th century, where we're located, this would this would not have been a, an, a, a like some sort of outrageous idea that if you lived with virtue and rigor, as he says, and you were dutiful and didn't have distractions and paid a certain amount of uh, attention selflessly to a, a, a life that was full of reverence and piety and focus that one would be not, one would be rewarded or one would be more, uh, one would have closer access to one's desires. Hmm, I think we might still be going through that thing <laughs> in certain sections of the world. And time and time again, what we learn is that those expectations don't always via God, via whatever you believe in, don't always manifest themselves in the way we wish, even though they may manifest themselves some, somehow. You know? And I think what Salieri keeps checking in the first act is, wait a second, we had a, we had a bargain, we made a deal about the way I'd live, and in return I would get this. That clearly doesn't happen, so he redirects the, he redirects the fight. He says, great, now, now I rebel. You know? Now, now I'm done with Mozart. Now my quarrel is with you upstairs, and that is when the play I think takes has a tipping point. And I actually don't think that tipping point. People think it's probably at the end of the first act with that giant, you know, speech naming God as the enemy. But I actually think that where he really, really turns, where it really turns the corner and gets laser focused, is. Um, 
is right when we get the news that his father's dead. Hmm. Mozart's father's dead. Yeah. That's just a peek into my pro- a little peek into what where, yeah, where yeah. I put a hash mark because once he finds out that that contextual it's sort of evil, but once Salieri finds out that that contextual kind of piece of uh, that 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 thing that contextualizes Mozart so clearly Leopold, everything he's known is gone. Then Salieri can step in in a way that he has not been able to at hmm. all so far in the play. And you can see it. Schaffer starts to make it extraordinary. Smaller scenes, more intimate between them, just the two of them, start happening from that point on. Um, and a much greater de- de- degree of vulnerability to, to, on the part of Mozart and, and totally. easier. And, than, and, and a much greater degree of reassurance from Salieri as right, a friend. Right. Financially, my friend, my new friend, you know. And even, even Salieri knows he's stepping into something at that point. That is so dangerous because he, he he calls him a friend. You know, he reaffirms that, and then he turns to the audience and he says, "Now, if ever, was the time for God to crush me." He is so aware, <laughs> even that that he has, you know. And I think that's one of the dangers of the play, and one of the things Jim Sullivan did so well, and and one of the things I love about working with Tasso and Betsy and the rest of the extraordinary cast is that there with plays like this, and you know this well, with plays like Hamlet, Othello, you know. The just big, big plays, comic, tragic, otherwise, you know, you got you got to figure out the architecture of when a penny drops. You could, I you I could do it here, but what does that do structurally to the rest of the play if you play it there? And and I think, I think I'm not totally sure, but I feel more and more confident as we're doing it that we built it well in terms of those things, um, but. There are nights also we still, you know, still exploring with varying degrees of um, texture in a certain scene, and t- sometimes I'll feel like ah, that's a little too far for that here, you know. But that's probably a, a healthy part of the of the performance process too, to feel like there's still that room to try things. There's still that flexibility to kind of work stuff out. I think so. I mean, I I I feel like the mark of a good production is that. Um, there's actually it's it's the work all the work is so specific that the freedom is greater and and I feel that and it also causes me not to want to um, push the freedom how how do you mean I I have no interest in bleeding outside the boundaries of what we've done because I want to be present to what we've done you know I do have interest in hearing something a different way and responding a different way if it's coming. I have interest in being present, and and that's it. And so if you're present, I'm going to know that Betsy's turned her head just differently, looked at me a line later, you know, and that's going to inform something. That's tiny, huge stuff. Yeah. You know, and it is my favorite kind of play, which if anyone – in the last, I don't know how many years, said, what, what kinds of plays are you drawn to? I'm drawn to gigantic, intimate plays. That's, Starts on the grand scale and sort of well, it's, zooms in. It's like, it's, this is going to sound, but it's like three people. Yeah. But it's not. It's the universe and God and this incredible cast of, you know. But it's, but it's so intimate, the journey for, for it's, unbearably intimate for an audience and for us 
and and unbearably vulnerable and immediate, you know. Well, it's interesting, too, that Schaffer has chosen to, I mean, it could have been a three-hander, right? It could have just been a few actors, but there are witnesses to all of this, and we have the house lights come up, and we are witnesses to it, too. And it's like he's constantly shining the mirror up in different ways to make it, to make that intimacy more universal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's so good in, in all of his writing at at, at, at implicating an audience yeah that you 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 have attention must be paid to quote arthur miller but yeah. I mean, you, you have to you have to be a part of this you you, you are this cannot happen without you mm-hmm. so you've talked a little bit about your process and and at the at the risk of taking something so complex and turning it into the cliche question i guess i would wonder how do you approach your process with a with a role like this, with a with a piece that's so vast, you know, I'm really slow as an actor. I'm really really slow. It takes me a long time. I watch people gallop out of the gates, and I'm like, revere these actors. So many of our actors here that like can figure stuff out and be doing stuff that makes sense to me, like two weeks in a rehearsal. I'm like, wow, you're acting. That's a full beat and really good. I, I am so confused and dyslexic and complicated and just, I mean, I don't mean I'm a complicated human being. I mean, I complicate things. I, I'm just extraordinarily slow when it has to come out of my mouth. And so I first try to recognize that and give myself as much patience as I can to be embarrassed and have and 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 succumb to the un unbearable eye rolling that I'm sure is going on. It's like this is the guy that's you know doing this part, and and know that I just have that. So if that is matched with a passion and excitement for the role, which in this case it certainly was, I would say this when I when I was found out that I was doing this for sure, it was fifty percent excitement and fifty percent utter terror, intimidation. There's no way I could possibly do this. I'm the wrong guy. You got the wrong person, you know. Some of that's protection. Some of it's just real, you know. And so I just, I kept coming back to, this is the only thing I came back to. I am not a movie watcher uh, for, like, you know, research as a director and an actor. I'm not a huge, I don't do a ton of research uh, because um, I have this, I have my own imagination and a childlike curiosity, and so I, for me, Salieri, my passion was to read those words. My passion was to sit. The only research I did was to sit in my basement in the full dark with my awesome headphones on and listen to music. And sometimes it wasn't Salieri or Mozart. Sometimes it was contemporary. Sometimes it was, you know, um, the Kings of Leon, you know. Yeah. But I'd be, But I'd be looking at that text, you know. And I find personally that the language and the structure of the language and the clarity of his writing tells you everything you need to know about how to unpack the role. It's a lot like Shakespeare in that oh, way. Man, is it ever? Yeah. Well said. Well said, structurally. And I had Jim Sullivan, who was extraordinarily patient with me, who I've worked with before, knows my process, knows I'm going to beat myself up. You know, knows that uh, it's going to take me a while to get these lines memorized because it's a huge part. And was there with me at, at every at every turn, good and bad. And 
it was just a sheer, I mean, I was at South Hall every morning, 8.30 in the morning, till my rehearsal started in the afternoon, either for Charlie's Aunt or, or this, and I kept my mornings completely free. I like to say I partly built whatever people think I'm doing in Amadeus. Our full-time staff deserves credit for my performance if people think it's good, because it's partly built on the backs of me not being here, you know? So it's like everything. I can say this, though. This is the fundamental thing. I just was excited, and I got more and more excited as I started to figure little things out. Like even as the first speech and the physical life or the old Salieri came into focus, that fed, oh, I could, there's something here. And then that fed like, I got, I think I got this. I think I got this figured out. And that fed a very tiny piece of me, a very, very tiny piece of me that started to grow that was some confidence. And then that fed like, Maybe you have a chance to do something you've never done before. Once that came into my head, that was I felt like I'm going off to the races. Let's shave my head. Let's go to, like, you know. Hmm. And, and that became extraordinarily gratifying because the floodgates opened for me uh, about what the whole play could mean to this theater, what it could mean to us, the joy and like absolute awe that I get to work with Tasso, who I'm friends with, and Betsy, who I'm friends with, and Larry Bull, and John Pribble, and Jamie Newcomb, and these wonderful kids from SUU who are in our ensemble, and hear that freaking music every time we're even in warm-ups. And, you know, and it just started to become this wild thing. And I could only, I got to let it go when I was doing Charlie's On, yeah. which was great, you know. <laughs> and so I really built it. You know, slowly, painfully, methodically, and then little pieces of my desire to do something and to honor the role, which can only be honored by, like, giving everything you have, I think, to it. And, you know, I hope it resonates with people. It's also, I will just say this, it's also probably one of the most personal journeys for me, which I won't talk about a ton. But, so connected to all that process, there's just a very, very personal intersection in my life that 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 feeds me, that that feeds my understanding of of the play, and that certainly allows me to to feel present to the emotional body of the play, and that just always has to do with my family and my kids, and and that's just like kind of I don't know, it's just this one. It's just really hit me, like in the solar plexus that way. For really, time. wow! Yeah. It's great when there can be that intersection of doing it at the right moment, finding those opportunities. I mean, it just seems like it. It sort of spills forth from there, in a well, way. That's that, well said. Yeah. I think the right moment, and I didn't. That's this is this is perfect analogy to Salieri. It's like, you know. You'd, you'd pray and pray and pray and pray to do like a role four seasons ago. And you, I don't get it, you know. And this thing comes along and it's like, I, I mean, I've always wanted to do it, you know. Yeah. It's like, I can't now, you know, I can't. And then something's telling me, oh, no, it wasn't now. It is the right time. Yeah. Absolutely, for whatever reason, in the midst of everything else, there is no, no better time. And I did not know that, you know, at all. Hmm. I thought this is crazy, you know. I guess you just have to kind of trust inside sometimes. Like this is the this is it. I'll do it now. Yeah, <laughs> um, one of the things that as an as an audience member is striking to me is that there is 
you talk about intimacy, there's a, there's a sense that you're talking to each person in the audience every time you turn outward, every time you have an aside, every time you want to connect with, with the people who are watching this story. Um, one of the things that you use that I think is really interesting is, I mean, you, you really tap into the sense of humor that this character has. I found myself laughing a lot more than I thought I would. Um, being taken into his view of the world. How did that, how did that sort of come about? Well, this is every, this is every character actors, you know, soapbox (laughs) deep buried inside of every comic character actor is the darkest little, you know, (laughs) star Wars creature standing in the bottom (laughs) of a well, you know what I mean? And like, I think, you know, it's the duplicity of humanity, you know, um, that that's where we get seduced by um, people who who have big thoughts and big ideas and are charismatic. And, you know, part of that is humor. Um, and I love to laugh, you know. Uh, I think Salieri is extraordinarily funny. Every piece of every information you, you, you could call about him, his lot in life, what he does, who he hangs out with, what the emperor says to him, you're being cattivo again, five times in the play. <laughs> that is a mantra to say, if you as a good, you're, you're not a good actor or director, if you can look at them and go, oh, other people think he's, he's a teaser. Yeah. He teases. You know? Yeah. So, so... You know, you could uh, an actor could turn out and still get a laugh on. Um, was it then so early? I began to have thoughts of murder, but you could play it sinister and still get a laugh, or you could, or you could smile out to the audience and go, "Are you with me? This is crazy. This guy's a genius, right? Should I kill him?" Yeah, you know what I mean. And and that brings people in, you know. And I, Jim, actually. Sullivan said it, I borrowed from him, and I thought it was, I'll, I'll steal it down the line and give him credit for it, but, you know, he said something I never really thought about, and I, I, don't, I don't think about it in the performance, but I, it's a good way to put it, which is, you know, he likes working with comic actors in, in these kinds of roles, one, because people don't know the well that they have, but two, comic actors know how to breathe with an audience, and I think that's what, that, I think that's what I, I think that's what I instinctively know how to do, which is mm-hmm. I, I can sense everyone and I'm weird that way anyway I'm very kinesthetically connected uh, just in general you know I, I, I can be distracted by someone you know in the courtyard that's 85 feet away while a million other things are happening you know I mean we can all do that to some degree but I but I but that heightened sense from years and years and years of having the relationship with the audience in comic roles and being a director of big comic pieces he put it in a way that I went, that makes sense to me. That's a yeah. good way to put it. You yeah. Know? It's just like. But boy, it becomes a, it becomes a weapon in this too. Because <laughs> you get our confidence and then you can do whatever you want at that point. Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty cool to, I will say it is pretty, it's a, it, I've never experienced before ever a, a quieter theater ever. Huh. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. 
um, just now people could be sleeping <laughs> and that's that's cool but I mean you know there there are times when we this cast wants them to turn a corner and 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 you know well you, what stop, you can you feel know? is everyone leaning in yeah, and yeah. and sort of following that that progression of what you are looking for to happen in this for to have happen yeah. in the story and that's Shaffer too I mean yeah. that's just honoring what he's got there you just got to yeah. find a way to, to land it you know yeah I mean and that's Jim and that's the cast but and some stuff is just so beautifully and Peter Hall too who really was responsible for for the musical structure of it in the first production I mean we all know this you know this as a director but it's like you know, if, if you undercut something and then slam it with a giant music cue, the space after it's going to have your attention. And and it's just then an actor, or if the actor doesn't know how to get into that next moment, then the director being able to say, what are you doing? Stop. Listen to that. Let it slam down, and then just, just turn your head out and, you know, smile, say the line, whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, whatever you want. It's right there for the taking, you know? And so... That's a really, this plays a really great example. Talk about a play dramaturg should study. And it's a really great example of how structure can illuminate um, uh, action, dramatic action or otherwise. You know what I mean? Just just how it can escalate and, and help narrative action, you know. Yeah, and the, and the substructure of the, of the long speeches too, I think, really gives us some fence posts for the storytelling in the play as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how trustworthy do you think Salieri is as a narrator? How much should we trust him as an audience? That's an awesome question. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't uh he doesn't lie to you. He's, he does his whole first speech and at the end he says he says, I just I did this deliberately. I carried the carried the news into the streets, you know. Um I think uh he he actually this isn't a problem with the play, but it's something that, that we talked about. There's a lot of, my quarrel wasn't now with Mozart, it was through him, through him to God. And then you see, you know, you're going to see it. Um, so sometimes, uh, I, I don't think it's an issue of trust at all. I think it's an issue of, um, is the what we see going to live up to the, live up to the narration of the speech or that you know what I mean or is, or is it going to yeah. turn a is it going to turn a corner in a way we didn't expect and usually it doesn't you know and there is a construction that also can be highly repetitive that I worry about and I do think about this and and this goes towards your question as well which is I almost hesitate to say it cuz I, I I don't want people to be looking for it but you know there's this there's we're experiencing so many of Mozart's pieces of work and that the structure especially in the second act becomes um, and it's partly that there's sort of say to the audience the truth, which is, how is he generating this? Which he did, and more, so much more. And then you experience it, and Salieri talks about it, and his experience with it, which is agonizing, because the key, I think, to Salieri, and to the relationship with the audience, and to how trustworthy he is, is as soon as you maybe stop trusting him, or you don't want to trust him, he experiences in front of you, and I, I'm proud of this in my interpretation, how much he's in a battle between the hatred and the absolute love. And that, to me, is the key of the role. You have to see a man who hears those compositions and cannot do anything but share God's love and reverence 
for what he's produced. And so when you might feel the distrust, that's where you go, you know, and that's what makes the role so hard. Yeah, and yet it also <laughs> seems too like the like the um, pulsation of the music is also just us getting deeper into the abysses of the abyss of Salieri's mind as well, and so that's I, I don't know. I mean, it just takes us. That's the duality, you know. What yeah. I mean? that's the thing. It's like, well, I forget who said it. We Jim and I talked about it, but it's like all men, all men kill kill what they love whether it's people or, you know, sabotage, you know, it's amazing. I think that's partly what makes it such an exhausting journey because you want, I mean, there's just the pure, like, okay, I'm on stage for three hours and everyone's got big stuff to do. But I think it's just, turn. I call it just turning those corners constantly, you know, just, just having to be aware of the grudge, which I said this a lot when I directed Roman and Juliet, like how much energy does it take to hold a grudge? Yeah. You have to constantly be aware of it. You have to remind yourself of it when you're when your guard's down and you're walking down a hallway and you have to remind yourself, Oh, I don't like that person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You have to you know, and so there's that just that pure like driven and I don't think it happens at the beginning point. It's not you know, isn't met Mozart, you know. But when that happens, that energy combined with I, I am now obsessed with this, you know, hatred while I am simultaneously in complete reverence, while I am simultaneously wondering why I don't have it, while I'm simultaneously hearing it in a way no one on the planet hears it, and no one willing to listen to me about it, and how do I use all that to get on a train track for destruction, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too. It seems like one of Saturday's other obsessions is the idea of mediocrity and sort of fitting the world into that frame of greatness, mediocrity, where he fits within that. That also would seem to take a lot of work as well. What... Why do you think why do you think he's so concerned about that? Well, I think that's that's the curse. I mean, the you know, he, now Schaffer has built this this addition because he worked on this play for this is the fifth, fourth or fifth rewrite. Yeah. And this is the one he's calling the the, the tragedy, which implies that you have, of course have at least in the classical principles you have the fall from greatness, a tragic flaw. So what's the greatness? The greatness is is that he's born with this he's born with an ability, this pair of ears. He's given a great life, but he's not able to use it for good. He uses it for evil. And I think in his myopic comparison to the world, what he can produce is mediocre. And what everyone when he says mediocre mediocrity is everywhere, you know. In this time living, there will be nothing other than mediocrity because God has spoken. God has spoken through a, one individual, you know. And so there's a, actually an honoring of religious structure in a sort of weird, weird way there. You know, he also says, every day I set to work, I prayed after the Don Giovanni section, which I love. And he, he says to the youngs, you get it, right? I, I still prayed. 
He doesn't leave it at that. He talks about what he prays for. Make yeah. this one good in my ears. He doesn't say, I prayed like, you know, for the children. I prayed that we would, you know. It's still about himself, you yeah. know. It's still about a bargain. Like, make me better. Give me one good song. I need a sunglasses at night. I wear my sunglasses at night. I could make a fortune. Just a one-hit wonder, you know. <laughs> and uh, and, he, and he, doesn't, he doesn't get it, you know. And... Um, so I think the mediocrity thing is, it's also, look, every artist, every person I know, we do it, you know. When, when you find a way to label your, yourself, when you find a way to prescribe for yourself the way you want the world to see you, um, good cop, bad cop, goofy comic actor, whatever, you, you, have, you, then, you then have the ability to not be hurt for yourself when you didn't get Salieri. Well, I'm not that guy. I'm Scapan. Of course I wasn't going to get it, crying inside. And I think the same is true. It's how he survives. Medi survival, totally. Yeah. Mediocrity. Yeah. You know? And then he exalts himself. I will be the patron saint of this. I will be the one that can absolve you. The Which word that is a... Yeah. I wish I could curse on these things, but that's a <laughs> that's a that's a move, you know. That's a, <laughs> well, yeah. there's, I mean, the word that just keeps coming to my mind is megalomania. I mean, he seems so so self centered that, in some ways, his well, mode of survival will be to bring everyone else down around him if he needs to. Well, it, I I think that the bring everyone down around him. I don't. I, I actually disagree. I think the megalomania is because of one thing. Huh. You know what I mean? I, I think if Mozart had not been in the world at the same time, if, if Salieri was born earlier, later, not at the time he entered in the court, you know, I don't know that, that he would have turned this madness corner and taken down the world. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is not a man that didn't work. He wasn't lazy. Right. You know, he, he, we hear it clearly. He made it to the Austrian court. He became first Kapellmeister. You know, he... Well, and he's a teacher too, I yes, guess, and absolutely, and, and was doing very well, you know. And could you have, have done to be better. somewhat giving to have totally successful people. Could, could have done yeah. better. Tragic yeah. laugh, unspooled, yeah. just, just taken, you know. Um, and it's 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 beautiful in the way it's constructed. But I will say this too, you know, Schaffer, you got to unearth some of them, but but. He gives you every possible, he tells the audience every possible thing that the actor could grab in the performance to, to balance out one quality that could overtake the role and have you go, oh, it's just a villain. Which I know happens in certain productions, or, you know, oh, I don't care, you know, or why is he so, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's the danger of the role, right, is I think to be just kind of antiseptic somehow or, or clinical or like, you know, like he's, he just has one thing he wants. But he says, which I just wrote and wrote about in my little show journal, the top of the second act before he dives really hard, he says, you must understand me. Not forgive. I do not seek forgiveness. I put so much stock in that understanding just from now outside the play, you know, uh, just in pure analysis that 
if we understand people, if we understand their actions, we have a chance of being either sympathetic or, or not as judgmental or not just dismissing them. But if we don't, if we're just witnessing, you know, forget it. And uh, that's, I think, another key to this role. It's like any piece of us in ourselves, that's why I say we want to see ourselves in the play. Um, because if you can understand, you can go, well, I, I get it. I don't want to admit it, but I get what it's like to feel those things. Or, matter of fact, I have a good friend who just wrote me who is, um, we're, we're, I like to say we're friends across the aisle. We're totally different, right? He's ex And I, I love him, and he's extraordinarily intelligent, and he's very religious. And he said, I'm, I'm disgusted and concerned how much I, I have in common with Salieri hmm. right now. He's like, I'm so having the hardest time with, he's, you know, he says, I've, I've, lately all I've said is, I go, you know, I go to church every, you know, I, I, I do, where, I do this, 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 and this. I was, you know, I'm doing, where is God? Where is God? And Salieri says, I did this, this, and this, and this. Why is God there? What? If God wasn't there, we might hear that Salieri figures out at 57 years old that he was born with a pair of ears. And he becomes the greatest transposer of arrangements in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, so, like, you know, maybe his gift was, was coming, you know? That, <laughs> he, that, that he, he, he doesn't figure out his gift. That's the tragic thing. What he has, his ability to hear music, to who, who somebody... Somebody in the world, I don't know who it was, I'm sure we could find out. Somebody in the world deemed the Mona Lisa an, a piece, an absolute masterpiece. Some eyes, or several, but at some point, you know, it could have ended up in a pile. And someone <laughs> went, this, you can't, this will, make, this this will make the ages more. Like, like yeah. Salier says about the Kyrie, you know. So, so there, that process has to begin somewhere, and it could have been for Salieri that he would have been, you know, and he was for Mozart. That's yeah. the killer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, to shift topics completely, I'm really curious about his sweet tooth. Oh yeah. <laughs> What's with that? Oh man. Um, no distractions. No distractions. I required only one quality in a domestic companion, lack of fire. And in that omission, Teresa was conspicuous. None. Focus. Kapellmeister. Court. Ambition. Move. Music. Most famous musician. I wanted fame. Except the sweets. Mm -hmm. It's not liquor. It's not really going to damage uh the kidneys or the liver or you know i mean might <laughs> yeah. put on a few pounds and i think it's his sensual experience that he allows himself you know i think it's it's absolutely um the thing that replaces uh all the other things that would not allow him to live with virtue live with rigor work and work and work relieve my fellow man, 
You know, I, this is what I love about the Viennese, actually, and I've done another play where pastries are, are, are prominently figured in, in Vienna. I don't know if you know Old Wicked Songs, but um, no. that's a great two-hander. But, <laughs> but uh, pa- pastries are, are such an interesting thing that aren't, uh, that aren't, there's not a direct translation in this country unless you go to a French bakery or, a, you know, there's not, you know, we have cookies and, and uh, but they're like little works of art, you know what I mean? They're like these little beautiful, well-made, intricately detailed things that work on a sense and that's what amazing composition music does it, it, it is built intricately to work on you know one of our senses and um, it's an interesting connectivity between the first eating of the pastries and then eating the curie you know like I, I, I put inside of me well that one is certainly God's God's words and music and composition, but the first is too, like the sensory explosion of it or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. also, I mean, I guess God created the pastry chef, too. Yeah. So, and it, I think it's a wonderful construct because it it it's, it it allows you. It's another thing that you talked about earlier that allows you to see Salieri to get to be let you in to see he has he has a not a weakness but a but a but a delicious uh desire um for something that um you get to see him get pleasure from something that's somewhat innocent you know i think we're coming to the end of our time here but it's been great to have you here i wonder if you might finish by saying what you hope people take away from this play? You know, I said it sort of at the beginning, but the most profound thing for me would be for people to see themselves in it, you know? For people, it's such a, such a wonderful dissection of human behavior. And um, there's also the soap. I've said soapbox a couple of times. There's also like me on my pedestal a little bit that has a we've received lots of praise for the production we've seen we've received lots of letters that people are upset about language and that Mozart could never have behaved that way which I'm sorry to say he he was he's <laughs> very accurately um, depicted in, in the play and I, my editorial is you know shame on us Shame on us. We 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 owe every creature of God or otherwise our deep care and our deep deep compassion, and we would be huge in huge trouble upstairs and in a big contradiction with ourselves if we can't acknowledge that in order to illuminate the good in stories and to illuminate the challenging things in stories. We don't represent both sides of the spectrum. It's silly to me to think you, you can't, we, we can't, how do we, how do we talk about things that we exalt if we don't show what's in relief to them? And, and, you know, great care needs to be taken in our, in our world 
And one of the things this play does is bring up some of those questions for people that just might be different, you know? And we care now about Mozart because of this genius music. But what about the care when he was not able to express words in a certain way because he wasn't given those faculties, you know? He was given a different set of faculties. How dare we condemn that? Uh, even if it's represented on the stage or not. And so I, I, I hope part of what people take away from the experience is recognition and tolerance um, and that a celebration of mankind's ability, you know? Um, and so that's it. And I also, I also hope that... Uh, They'll just relish what I think is a, a, a rare opportunity to see to see this play uh, in the context of so many other plays that speak to each other on different levels. And that that's what I think is truly unique in some ways. And I hope people will enjoy and 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 really look at Amadeus on its own and look at it in relation to South Pacific and what that has to say about tolerance, you know, and look at it in terms of in, in relationship to to even Henry for part two that has some things in, in that play that deal with what our first perceptions are and how they change. And I mean, that's why I'm in this business. And, you know, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to you and to everyone for the chance to speak about it. So thanks. Great. Thanks, David. Appreciate you coming in. You bet. Thank you for listening to another episode of the play on podcast. Be sure to go back and listen to past interviews on the festival webpage. Check out the latest episode released every Friday with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from our 2015 season.